for others. That's what we're going to talk about. And here we are thanking you for this beautiful child. Thank you for our children. We thank you for the people of God. We thank you for the people that have been in our life that have had a major impact and influence upon us, Lord. But above all, we thank you for who you are and your grace and your goodness and your love. And I pray today that you'll open our hearts and speak into our lives and that we will leave this place, Lord, hearing your voice and not only experiencing your presence, but Lord, I pray that something will be deposited that will be transformative in nature within our innermost being. I pray that today would be a definitive moment where you would change the way we see people and the way we relate to you and to others in a powerful, positive way. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles this morning. If you don't have one, there's actually one in front of you in the pew. We're going to be looking at the book of Philippians chapter 1. One of my favorite books of the Bible. I love this little book. There's so much powerful material inside here. Retired U.S. Marine Corps General Charles Krulak tells of a time before he knew Christ... He was studying and training to be a Marine, and this happened to him. He's a general, but back in the day when he was in officer school, he had just graduated, and two weeks later, he got married, and he and his wife went to Quantico, Virginia, where they did basic, you know, officer training stuff, and he said that's where we learn, you know, things like honor, courage, and commitment. And he said, at that time in my life, I had this vision of myself that I saw myself as a cross between John Wayne and Tom Cruise. (laughs) So obviously, he had no self-esteem issues, right? He just thought, you know, I'm I'm macho man and I'm, you know, handsome. But eventually, I ended up rooming with another married officer. His name was John Listerman. And John was an incredible human being. Actually, he was a Christian. And if you would have asked, you know, John... You know, you just kind of exuded generosity and goodness. If you'd say, hey, John, I need your arm, he'd say, where do you want it, from the elbow or the wrist? I mean, he's just that kind of person. He'd give the shirt off his back. And, and so I always thought, you know, John, he's just a great guy, you know. Uh, and, and being a Christian, well, you know, that was okay. I mean, he must have some value because this was a good person. And then after graduating from the school, both he and, and uh, John were sent to Camp Pendleton in California where they were preparing to, you know, oversee a battalion of soldiers and be sent to Vietnam. How many know when you're in that kind of a situation, kind of a challenging moment? And he said, then I saw another side of John Listerman. I mean, he was an amazing leader, very efficient, and also dynamic. And he really loved the people that were serving under him, and they could sense that, and they were very committed and loyal to him. And he said, now they were sent out, and it was December, a December morning in 1965. And that was the day we went to war, and that was the day John Listerman's war lasted one day. We were on a patrol moving down a trail through the jungle. We came around a corner. We ran into an ambush, and John took the first shot, a 50 millimeter caliber bullet in his right kneecap. And it lifted him right off the ground, and the second shot actually... Uh, went right below his heart and exited out of his side. And he said, I was wounded also, but nowhere near as badly because I could see that John was laying about 30 meters away and his leg had been taken off. I mean, it was a very traumatic experience. You can imagine this. And I started crawling up to him and I wanted to say, are you okay? Can I do anything? But before I could do that, he turned and looked at me and he said, hey, Chucker, are you okay? And then he said, how about the men? Are they okay? And I said, yeah, John, your people are okay. And at that point, he turned his head and he looked up to the sky and he began to repeat over and over again, thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving my people. Thank you, Lord, for saving them. Thank you for taking care of me. And he said, I was so dumbstruck at that moment. How many Because that's a very powerful moment? That's when you know Christianity is the real deal. And... As I was thinking about John Listerman's heart of gratitude and concern for the man that he was serving over, I was reminded of this text of Scripture that we're going to look at today, which expresses what we should be thankful for. I mean, we could sit down and talk about, you know, I'm thankful for the great country we live in. I'm thankful for the freedoms we have. I'm thankful for the provisions that are in my life. But, you know, probably the greatest reason we need to be thankful for are the people God brings into our lives. 
That is the greatest gift. It's not what people can do for us. It's just the actual person themselves, their, their presence in your life, how powerful that really is. And as I was thinking about this and looking at this text from Philippians, I was reminded of how the story really started. And you find it starting in the book of Acts in chapter 16 when Paul in his life was actually looking for direction. And that, that's true in all of our lives. There's moments where we're looking for God to give and bring direction into our lives. And, and the Apostle Paul was with a small missionary team and they were in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey, and they were looking about where to move forward and where to share the gospel. And it was kind of a low point in Paul's life. How many know that oftentimes the most significant movements in our life come from a low point? And Paul had had a little bit of a conflict with another Christian believer. And you know, isn't that interesting that we can actually have dif- differences and disagreements in the Christian church? And actually, this book actually deals with that, the book of Philippians. But Paul's mentor was a man by the name of Barnabas. And last week, if you were here, David McFarland talked a little bit about Barnabas. His, none means, his name means son of encouragement. He was always looking out for other people. He was the guy that brought Paul and actually helped introduce him to the church. And now, Barnabas and Paul are in a point of disagreement. And it happens over... Barnabas's nephew, Mark. John Mark was his name. And John Mark was actually part of their team earlier, and he had quit the ministry. And it was kind of, it, you know, we, we don't get a sense of how, how bad it was, but it probably was very disruptive at the time. And John Mark left, and so now Barnabas is suggesting on their second trip to bring John Mark with them, and Paul goes, he's not ready for this. He just, he just gave up the last time. And Barnabas says, listen, I know that he's felt bad about it ever since. I know that we need to give him another chance. And so they, they had a dispute over whether to bring John Mark on their second missionary trip. Now, this tension has always existed in the church. I'm going to re- reframe it a little bit, and you'll understand what the tension is. The tension is between which is more important, the work or the worker. And that tension has always existed in the work of the ministry. And so the Apostle Paul was concerned that the ministry would suffer because of the inadequacy of John Mark. Barnabas was concerned that we would lose a potentially great worker who may one day become a great leader and have a great impact in the church. And so he was willing to run the risk of you know, bringing this you know, underdeveloped worker who had a potential to be a leader. Now, that's an incredible tension. And I'm not saying either one was right or wrong, but I'll tell you what happened. Barnabas took John Mark with him and he went to his home island of Cyprus. And I'm glad he did that because actually John Mark had great potential. Eventually his life really turns around. He becomes the author of the Gospel of Mark. And eventually Paul recognizes what a great asset he really became. They restored their relationship. And later on in Paul's life, John Mark was a great benefit to him. So I have a great soft spot for the worker and leader potential because I realize the church is dependent on leaders. How many recognize that? Now, on the other side, you can have leaders that are very disruptive and they do have a negative impact on the work of the ministry. So I could appreciate Paul's concern there. And so Paul goes off with Silas and they start heading out and building another missionary team. And in the reality, two teams eventually go to two different places. But it's at a very difficult part in Paul's life. How many go, that's kind of a low point. I mean, that's not, how many know if you have people conflict, that's a low point in your life? Anybody relate to that? That's always a low point. And we've all experienced that to some degree in our life. Now, Paul and his team are trying to decide where to go. And the, and the Bible tells us that out of this experience, they end up in a city called Troas. And because they get to the city, Paul eventually meets a very significant person in his life, and his name is Luke. And we read it here in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14. This is later on. Paul is writing. He says, Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. So Paul now meets this man in Troas. And my question is, how, how, how do you end up meeting a doctor? Well, you probably need one. And there was probably a moment in Paul's life where he maybe was physically having difficulty and he ended up connecting with Luke. And then in chapter uh, 4 and verse 11 of Second Timothy, at the end of Paul's life, it's interesting, he says this statement, only Luke is with me. In other words, you know, in the long journey of the Christian life, the one man that stayed beside him through his entire ministry 
was Dr. Luke. Isn't that neat? He had this friend that hung with him the whole way. And then he says this, get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. So obviously Timothy and Mark were significant people. They were doing ministry elsewhere. Timothy was now being recalled by Paul, bring Mark with you. But he says, I just want you to know, while I'm in this place, he was in Rome at this time, he said, hey, the only person here is my friend Luke. In other words, Paul was saying, I need some reinforcements. But it's interesting. So how does he meet Luke is a fascinating story. And uh, Luke is a fascinating person. By the way, he's the only New Testament writer that's non-Jewish. He's a Gentile. I think that alone makes him unique. Number two, he was probably the most, one of the more well-educated people. And when he writes the Gospel of Luke and when he writes the book of Acts, he's writing it from more of a professional mindset and a very good historian. And he gives us a lot of interesting details as to places and times in the first century. But let's pick up the story of how this church starts, and then I will introduce this chapter to us, chapter 1. It says in Acts 16.6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia and haven't been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. How many have ever had an experience where you really felt you needed to do something and yet God wasn't allowing you to do it? Ever had that experience where God was closing that opportunity? And sometimes we get frustrated. God, what are you doing? You know, I want to go do something for you, but this door is not opening for me. And God did shut it down here. We see that. And then in verse 7, you'll notice I'm underlining certain words. You know, have you noticed that? And they came to the border of Mycenae. So it's they. That's third person. That means it's not, Luke is not including himself in the story here, right? They came to the border of Mycenae. They tried to enter Bithany, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So that team is being constricted by what God is allowing them. A lot of times we say to ourselves, I wonder what God's will is for me. Can I just tell you, a lot of times God's will isn't that hard to discern because If you have a right heart and you're trying to do the right thing, if God doesn't want you to do something, it just won't happen. He just doesn't allow those opportunities to come your way. So I think certain opportunities is part of what God is doing to show us this is what he has in mind. Now you'll notice it's they, they, and them. Then in verse 8, so they passed by Messiah and went down to Troas. Now where is Troas? I've actually been there. It's in present day Turkey. It's on the you know, what would we call that? The east side of the Aegean Sea and on the west side of the Aegean Sea is the islands of Greece. Everybody follow that. So he's, this is all in Asia. Now this is a very significant moment in the, not only in Paul's life, not only in these missionaries, not only in their ministry, this is a significant moment in human history especially if you have a European background, because this is the moment that God shifts the gospel from being an Asian-only religion to movement to Europe. And how many know that affected a lot of us? Can you see that? That's powerful. You know, then it says, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, that's a province in Greece, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. Notice the change in the number of, you know, what's going on here. Paul, Luke is now the writer, includes himself. So somehow in Troas, Luke joins up with this team. How many see that? It says, now, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. So Luke now is telling the story. It's they, they, they. They end up coming to Troas, and then it's all of a sudden we. He joins the team there at Troas. How many see that? Isn't that fascinating? It says, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. It's very powerful. Now, what many of us don't realize is Luke's hometown is in Macedonia. Now, how many know when you give your life to Christ, one of the first people that you're excited about telling are the people you're the closest to? I got to go tell my family. I got to go tell others about what's just happened to me. And so Luke now is now excited to go home and tell the people in his community what's happened to him. It's really powerful. Now, many of us may not know that, but the city of Philippi had a great medical center, and many physicians were actually trained there and ended up practicing around the Mediterranean basin. One of the reasons, and I don't know if you noticed this, but Greeks were great colonizers. Anybody know that? 
And the reason they were was because Greece did not sustain a large agricultural base. And that's why they had to ship people to other parts of the Mediterranean so that they could actually survive. If the, if the country grew too much in population, the land could not support them because it's mostly mountainous and rocky. So Luke was now living in Turkey. But his heart was still back in Macedonia. And I recognize that for most of us, when we come from a place, our heart always resonates with that place. Isn't that the truth? How many know that you can say that's true? And even though you may have immigrated to Canada, how many know that if you've immigrated from somewhere, your heart is still somewhat where you came from. You still have deep feelings with the language, the culture, and the people of that area. And that was certainly true of Luke. Now, when they start to head off on the ship, it's fascinating that they end up staying and ministering, first of all, in Philippi. Because Paul had an interesting strategy. I believe it was spirit-directed. Here it goes. When you read the book of Romans, it says, Paul says, I went to the Jew first and then to the Gentile or to the Greeks or to the others. Isn't that true? That was Paul's strategy. Jew first, then the others. Now, That would suggest that Paul would go to a center where there was a synagogue where there were Jewish people. But you know what? The main center that had a synagogue in the province of Macedonia was Thessalonica. Philippi didn't even have a synagogue. As a matter of fact, if you read the story, you find out it's just a prayer meeting by a river and a bunch of women are there. And there's not even 10 men of Jewish descent. Otherwise, they'd have built a synagogue. So that's not a big Jewish population in the city of Philippi. Number two, some would argue, well, the reason why they ended up stopping first in Philippi and then going on to Thessalonica was, was the first city the boat came to. That may be true, but Paul a lot of times passed communities and stayed on the boat and just went to the major center. And how many recognize that presenting the gospel from a major center is very strategic? I want you to think about that for a minute. You know, you and I live in the city of Red Deer, for most of us, right? But some of us, we don't live in the city of Red Deer. We live in outside, outlying areas. But how many recognize that we always end up coming back to Red Deer? We end up coming back to Red Deer to shop. We come back to Red Deer to do a lot of our economic transactions. How many recognize that? And so centers have a way of influencing people. People end up coming to the center and then going back to their areas. And the gospel spreads far more dramatically when you focus on the centers and then you end up winning those centers so that people are influenced by the centers. So cities have an unusually greater amount of influence than rural smaller regions. How many know that's true? And rather we like it or not, that's the reality. And so Paul understood that. And if you study his missionary journeys, you'll find out that he did do exactly what I said, except for this time. He ended up stopping in Philippi. And I think the reason being was he was influenced by his friend. You know, how many, how many know that friends are a tremendous source of influence in our lives. And number two, God uses people to many times move and direct our lives. Their lives influence us. That's exactly what Luke is doing here. He's saying to Paul, we've got to stop here first. Yeah, we need to get to Thessalonica, but we've got to stop in Philippi. I've got to tell my family. And so they ended up stopping in the city of Philippi, which I think is an amazing story. And you know what? That becomes a very significant element in Paul's life. And I'll tell you why. Because of all the churches that Paul started, the church at Philippi supported him like no other church did. A lot of the churches didn't support him at all. This was a very unique church. And you can see that throughout his ministry. And he says it over and over again. But let me just talk a little bit about the need to have the right kind of friends. How many know right friends is really powerful in our lives? Think about it. Stories told, it's a cute little story, of a farmer, and he had a pet parrot. And, uh, but, he, but he also had a field full of corn, and these crows kept terrorizing his cornfield. Does anybody ever get frustrated? Do you guys, anybody have crows hanging around your house? They make a lot of racket. And, you know, they were terrorizing this farmer's field, and he was frustrated by this thing. And so one day he said to himself, I've just had it with these birds. He grabbed his shotgun. He's crawling out there to, you know, shoot, scare them away, shoot them. If a few get hit with some pellets, it's no big thing in his mind. So he's crawling along there. Meanwhile, his parrot, the sociable little bird that he is, went out the door, joined the parrots, you know. Farmer didn't notice that, took a shot. All of a sudden he saw wings and feathers flying and all kinds of things happening, flapping. And so he crawls over there and takes a look. And here's his little parrot. 
and she's been hit by some of his pellets. Not dead, but, you know, kind of flapping around. And, and, he, and he was, like, really upset now because, you know, the, he's got to go home. He's got to explain to the kids. You know, he shot their pet parrot. You know, how's that going to fly, you know? So he goes home. He's carrying this little pet parrot. He's trying to settle it down. And, you know, the kids are going, what happened, Dad? What happened? And before he could say anything, the parrot answered, bad company. <laughs> I couldn't resist. As somebody pointed out, a false friend is like a shadow. As long as there's sunshine, he sticks close by, but the minute you step into the shade, he disappears. You can always tell the measure of your friends that when you're in a tough time, the true friends are there with you, walking with you through that time in your life. That's the, that's the story of true friendship. So here in our opening chapter of the book of Philippians, we find that really... Our love for God, our gratitude to God, I think is best expressed and measured by the way we relate to other people. And so that's really the essence of what I'm going to talk about today. How, how is it that uh, we express gratitude to God for others? That's probably the most important expression right there. The greatest thing you should be thankful for today is the people God's brought into your life. We should never take for granted who they are because you and I never know when they won't be with us. And we need to, you know, if you want to say something, you know, so many people say, you know, I, I wish I would have said this to this person before they disappeared. And it's really tragic. A lot of times I listen to eulogies and, I, you know, you wonder to yourself, I wonder if the person who passed away really knew the depths of what that person meant to them. Wouldn't it be better if we told people while they're living, not just when they're gone, how much they mean to us? So that's a challenge today that we would consider doing that. But notice, Paul, there's three expressions here in this chapter that he expresses gratitude to God for others. And the first one is found here in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. Now, isn't that neat? Every time he thinks of a person, he starts thanking God for them. And I want to challenge us today that when you and I are walking through our day and somebody comes to our mind, that we immediately start thanking God for them and start praying for them. That we would just lift them up before Almighty God. That would be such a powerful habit to develop in our life. And what a blessing you and I can bring for people when, they, when their, when their uh, faces come to our minds or their names come to our minds or we, you know, they're just on our hearts, that we would start you know, thanking God for them and praying for them. And that's what Paul does here. He was thanking them, and he says, In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because, and he gives the reason why he's so thankful for them, because they were partnering with him in the gospel, he said, from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So, first of all, who do we thank for people? Now, a lot of people are just thanking people. But when you're a Christian... And you know God, it's easy to say, I thank God for you. You know, I know who I'm expressing thanksgiving. I always feel bad for people who don't know God. I mean, they may be thankful, but who are they thanking? You know, you and I know who we're thanking. We're thanking the one who created us. We're thanking the one who's blessed us. We know where these blessings are coming from. And we're thankful to him for that. And we're thankful for the people he's brought into our lives. And Paul was thanking these people because they were partners with him. They had the same heart. They had the same mission, the same vision, the same passion, the same understanding. They were sharing the same life. As a matter of fact, he, w- he was uh, rejoicing uh, over this. And as I was reflecting on Thanksgiving, the thought occurred to me, you know, for most of us, our focus is on family. That's a good thing. I I think that's a good thing. But I think we don't just focus around the special event. We need to to actually rejoice over these people. But then I thought about other people. You know, Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter and some of these times of celebration is also a time of dread for some people. Isn't that true? You know, because there's conflict in relationships. And then we go, oh, I got to run into these people and I'm not excited about that. How many know that's true? Now it's getting quiet in here. See, now, now, I'm, now I'm into meddling a little bit here. But I think this is important that we sit down and think about this for a minute because we need to understand something. What is the gospel? The gospel means good news. It's the good news that Jesus died for us so we could be what? Reconciled to our Father in heaven. But do you know ultimately what God's design is so that we can be reconciled to each other? You see, I believe that 
you know, reconciliation with God means that I need to learn how to be reconciled with others. And the Apostle Paul said it this way, that you and I should try to live at peace with all people as much as it lies within our possible, as much as it lies within us. We can do all that we can. Now, there are some people, they just cut us off. Anybody have that experience? They just cut you right off and that's the end of it. You could try for a relationship. They don't want one. That's, then you can't walk around feeling bad, guilty, and all the rest of it because you go, hey, I've done everything I can to have this relationship. They don't want it. It takes two to have a relationship. How many know that's true? Okay? But it's important that we don't walk around going, you know, I, because a lot of times I think what happens is we get you know, a little frustrated with people. We can get irritated, annoyed, irked, right? How many here grew up and you were, you were not the only child in a home? You were not the only child in a home. Okay, you had what? Siblings. And how many know that you don't always get along with your siblings? Does anybody know that's true? You know, and I figured this out. You don't get to pick family. Anybody figure that out? You get to pick your friends, but not your family members. And that's always a challenge, and you got to work through issues. You notice that your mom and dad, they were always concerned that you got along with your sibling. How many know that's true? Now, why would your mom and dad want you to get along with your sibling? Because usually parents loved both kids, or three kids, or four or five, whatever month you had, right? They loved all those kids, and they wanted those kids to love each other. How many know that's really what was going on in the heart of a parent? Now, you think about it. God feels the same way about us. God actually loves the person that's bugging you. Anybody thought about that? God actually loves the person that's irking you, that's annoying you, that's frustrating you, that's driving you crazy, that you are going, I don't like this person. God actually loves that person. How many have ever thought of it that way? No, we don't. We just go, God, how can you even like that person? You're more like me, God, right? God goes, no, I'm unlike you. I actually love that person. I actually died for that person. Wow, that's, that's intense. So you and I have to reevaluate what it costs God to have a relationship with that individual. And we, you know, we cannot minimize what God is trying to do in our lives. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here talking about how these were the only, this was the, the one church that constantly gave financially to Paul. The other churches, a lot of times, he goes, man, I'm robbing other churches by receiving support for them so I can serve you. The Corinthians that was a nasty group. I hate to say it, but they were not nice people. And the community was a mess, and the church many times was a mess, and they weren't that generous either. But, you know, so, and then he finally says, you know, the people who helped me were from Macedonia. That's the northern Greeks. See, uh, Corinth is in Acacia, which is the southern part of Greece. He goes, no, the guys from the north, they kept coming down and helping me out. The church at Philippi did that. And then Paul goes on to say to them in the fourth chapter how happy he was that they did that. And he says it in a very interesting way. He goes, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me more than once when I was in need. You sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Isn't that amazing? So this church really helped him. And then he said, not that I desire your gifts. Paul goes, that's not what motivates my thanksgiving. It was nice that you gave it to me, but that's, you know why I was really happy? Because I wanted, the desire was for you to have this credited to your account. Now watch what he says here. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a what? A fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Isn't that amazing? What is he saying? Your generosity is an expression of your love, not just towards me, but also it's like a fragrant offering to God. Isn't that beautiful? So Paul was rejoicing that their, their love and generosity is an expression of their worship. How many actually see that giving is actually worship? How many actually knew that giving is worship? Very few of you. Okay. Can I explain why giving is worship? Can I, can I just take a moment? I'll tell you why it is. Because every dollar you give, when you think about it, we're in a barter system. Actually, what you're giving is your time. What you're giving is your energy and your effort. So when you're giving somebody of that, what you're basically doing is giving a little piece of yourself. Okay? I want you to think about that for a minute. That's what God is looking at. God is looking at our attitude. And so when we're generous towards people, God is going, I love that. 
It's, it's like we're blessing God. God, because now we're reflecting the nature of God. This is an expression of worship. But sometimes we, you know, I'm going to help you translate and think of giving in a totally new way. If every time you gave a gift, you thought, I'm giving this to God, that would change the way your whole approach to giving would be. I'm giving this to God. I'm giving my time, energy, and life to God. I'm, I'm devoting myself to God. This is an expression of worship to God. You know, that would change your whole attitude about giving. That's why Paul says God loves a cheerful, generous person. God loves that. Because you know what's happening? It means that your heart is like the Father's heart. Your heart is like God's heart. God loves people. He cares about other people. He sees people in need and he wants to do something about it. How do you know this, Pastor? Because I've studied the life of Jesus. Everywhere he went, he was extravagant. He was generous. He saw things. But, you know, I was listening to... um, uh, Les Perry here this week, and he said something very powerful. He was quoting from the message in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He was talking about how Jesus' nature was extravagant. He was generous. He was giving of himself. And then he says this little statement. This is Eugene Peterson's tra- translation. He says, just like Jesus loves us, love like that. How many say that's amazing? God wants us to be like him. He wants us to love each other like he loves us. How many say that's amazing? I think it's amazing. Well, I'm going to move on to my second point. I can do this. We had a baby dedication, folks. If you want the notes, I'll send them to you, okay? Number two, the the second expression of gratitude to God for others is in his God-inspired affection for them. And I've already been touching on that. Think about it. Paul says in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. Isn't that amazing? Now, I want to say something. Paul knew what was going on in this church. You know, I've studied this book. Chapter 1, verse 27, he says, have the same mind. Chapter 2 and verse 4 says, may may you have the same mind as Christ had. Which mind was that? Mind of a servant. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I want Euditus and Synecdoche to stop fighting. He says this. He says, I want you to get along. You're my fellow partners. What is Paul telling us? There was conflict in their relationships, but Paul loved them all. It was an amazing thought. He loved these people even though they, were, they had issues. In other words, I could say it this way. He loved them warts and all. Okay, are you following? There was blemishes in their life. They didn't. They weren't perfect people. They had issues in their life. He's trying to tell them, you need to learn how to get along. And the only way to learn how to get along is you have to lay down your life and you have to take on the mind of Christ. You have to become like Jesus. You have to have a servant's heart. As a matter of fact, the greatest need that all of us have in this room is that we actually learn we have a need to be loved. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But let me just say this. Paul goes on to say in verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's powerful. He's saying, I'm, I have the same heart for you that God has for you. I love you the way God loves you. I'm loving you unconditionally. Is that amazing? Can you imagine if we actually love people the way Christ loves people? What would happen? Wouldn't, that be, wouldn't our world change? Yeah, but you go, that person's my enemy pastor. Do you know Christianity is the only faith that teaches us to love our enemies? Could you imagine if Christians actually listened to what God was saying to them and actually read the word of God and recognized in our relationships, God says, you know, I, you know I, and I've read this years ago and I, I've never forgotten this. You know, there was a guy that came to a counselor because he wanted to leave his wife. And the counselor said, listen, the Bible commands you to love your wife. The guy goes, well, I don't even like her, you know. And then he went on and he said, well, yeah, but you got to love your neighbor as yourself. Treat her as a neighbor. He goes, I don't even think of her as a neighbor counselor. And then he finally said, the Bible says you got to love your, you know, your enemies. I mean, at least you can see her as an enemy, can't you? We're still commissioned to love our enemies. And could you imagine if we started to do that, how it would change our world, that you and I would begin to love people, even in spite of what they're doing to us, that we would show love and compassion toward them. What do you think would happen in our world? 
Oh, you'd have great things happening. Yeah, you're right, Donovan. That would be so powerful. People would just be blown away. You know, you know what? A lot of times when we see people who are opposed to us and against us and don't have the same values and are attacking us, we want to just take them down. Come on now. God says, stop it. I will deal with all the wicked and the injustice in the world. What I want you to do is love them. Really? But I'm going to tell you something. When you start loving your enemies, your enemy's going, I've never known love like that before. And that is a powerful, transformative element in people's lives. You know, I love the story that's told by this parent. Because we have to start thinking about the great cost that it caused Christ to reach out and save us, right? Every person, you know what the value of every human person is? The price of Christ's life. How many know that all of a sudden, you know, a lot of times we depreciate ourselves. You should stop doing that. Your value is so high. You're the price of what, you know, value is based on what somebody's willing to pay for something. How many know that's true? Think about Christ died for you. You are of the highest value to God. And what God is trying to say to all of us is that we need to treat other people with that kind of value in mind. That is powerful, folks. It changes how we're going to relate to people. I love the story told a number of years ago. I'm focused on the family. He, uh, I don't know which one of the pastors there. I don't know if it was, uh, what's his name? Uh, not Dobson, but his cousin. Doesn't matter. Received a letter. And he, and he got a letter from a young mother. Well, she's 36. That's young to me. 36 years old. And she was in advanced stages of terminal cancer. And she went to one of the doctors and they said, listen, you don't have long to live. Just go down to Mexico, sit on the beach and enjoy it. Because you're not going to be here a long time. Just enjoy your time. And she went to another doctor and he said, listen, we can do all of these things. We can give you chemo, radiation, all the rest of it, extend your life. But all we're going to guarantee is that this will only give you two to four years. And if you go through this, it's going to be terrible. You're going to, you know, all the problems. That, and, and some of you already have gone through some of this stuff. You know this stuff. And this is what the mother said. She wrote a letter to her children, and she said this. I've chosen to try and survive for you. This has some horrible costs, including pain, loss of my good humor, and moods I won't be able to control. But I must try this, if only on the outside chance that I might live one minute longer. And at that minute could be the one you needed me, one no one else would do. For I intend to struggle both tooth and nail, so help me God. What was she saying? I want to be there for you as long as I possibly be. In other words, I'm not doing this to you know, extend my life for my sake. I'm doing this to extend my life for your sake. And how many know that's the Spirit of Christ inside of this mother saying, I'm doing this for you. Paul C. Raud says this, where compassion reflects the yearning of the heart to merge and take on some of the suffering. Pity is a control set of thoughts designated to assure separateness. Let me explain what he's saying there. We've all known the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Levite and the priest, they might have shown the guy pity, but it didn't move him to do anything. They might have felt bad that he was hurt, but they didn't touch him. But how many know compassion? Compassion does something. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, compassion is the spontaneous response of love. Pity, the involuntary reflex of fear. You know, I was thinking back to one time, Rachel, you were in the hospital in the intensive care, your little baby. And at that moment, I would have given everything to trade places with you. Because you had inability to communicate, and you were crying and crying and crying. I had no idea what was wrong with you. And, And Patty and I were just sitting there, and we were just like, we would, in a heartbeat, trade places. You see, that's compassion. Pity just means, oh, I feel bad that she's going through this, but I have no emotional connectedness with it. Let me move on to the third expression, the scene in his prayer for them. This is really fascinating to me. You know, do you know our greatest need is to be loved unconditionally? How many know that's true? That's our greatest need. Every one of us in this room needs to be loved. You know, that's a terrific need. And only one person can love us like that. That's God himself. But not only is our greatest need to, to be loved, but to grow in love. When we become a Christian, think about what's happening. We've asked Christ to come into our life. Who is he? He is God, and God is love. 
And so as Christ becomes more and more real to us, as we you know, are laying down our lives and allowing Christ's life to grow within us, what's growing within us is love. You see, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Is love, joy, peace, right? Galatians 5.22. But you notice it says the fruit of the Spirit. It's singular. The fruit of the Spirit is love. I think joy and peace and long-suffering and patience, all of those are expressions of love. So what should be happening in my life as a Christian, if I'm maturing, is that I'm becoming a more loving person. How many are tracking with me? How many are seeing what I'm saying? Now notice what Paul prays here. This is very fascinating in this chapter. Verse 9, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ of the glory and praise of God. His prayer is that your love may abound more and more in knowledge. Now, that already tells me something. Our world does not understand love. Our culture does not understand love. Our culture are hopeless romantics and sentimentalists. But you know what? Our, our world's concept of love is live and let live. Our world's concept of love is you do your thing and I do mine. But folks, that's not real love. Because if you really love somebody, you want what's best for them. And what's best for them may look differently than what they think they want. And that's one of the sad things in our life. Paul is actually praying for a love that discerns between what is pure, best, and blameless, which is so unlike our commonly held assumptions about what love is. Every sin we commit is in essence a violation of love. It depreciates the image of God within ourselves and it depreciates the image of God within another person. It's a violation of love. Every single sin, violation of love. We are not to love evil. We are not to love the values of our society which foster sin. As a matter of fact, you know, our culture today is advocating freedom to sin while the church when it's preaching the Bible, is advocating freedom from sin. Because sin is what's destroying us. And our culture says, please leave us alone. We want to continue in our sins. And I'm going, hey, all that's doing is destroying you. And you know what? That's even true in our own lives as Christians. If we allow sin to rule and reign in our hearts, we become a slave to sin. And God says, you can be free from that. You and I can live free from those things in our life so we can enjoy life to its fullest. I love what Madame Guion wrote in her autobiography. She said this, God gives what is best for us, though not what we most relish or wish for. This is interesting. What she's going to say here now is going to diminish our constant dissatisfaction in life. Because I think there's a deep dissatisfaction so often in people's souls. She said, we're people... Were people but convinced of this truth, they would be far from complaining all of their lives. What is she saying? Give what is, God's giving what is best for us, but not what we most relish or cherish. People want to direct God instead of resigning themselves to be directed by God. They want to show him a way instead of passively following the way he's leading them. Hence, many souls called to enjoy God himself and not barely his gifts spend all their lives in running after little consolations and feeding on them, resting there only, making all of their happiness to consist therein. Now, what is she basically saying here? I'm going to summarize it. <clears throat> that we're so easily satisfied from the gifts from God, that's the little consolations, rather than to annoy and enjoy God for who he is. Oh, that our soul would desire what is best and what can be better than God himself. You see, what I'm saying is, in life, we're pursuing all kinds of things to try to make us happy. And you know, a lot of times God blesses us with people and things and positions and accolades or some success that culture thinks is success. But at the end of the day, all of those things eventually bring us to a point of, you know, I just went to, you know... Disneyland, but now I'm not satisfied with Disneyland anymore. I need to go to Disney World. 
And if I'd just been to Disney World, I've got to go do it in Paris. Or I, I have to go to Hawaii. But after being there five times, eventually that gets old too. You know, we're, we're just, we're so saturated that eventually we go, I never can be satisfied with what I have. And what I'm arguing for is so often we're allowing what God brings into our lives as if this is what life is about. And I'm arguing today, that's not what it's about at all. That when you and I have God and we enjoy God, we actually have the ultimate satisfaction in life. And there's no one greater than that. interesting thought. Maybe we need to calibrate, recalibrate, and think about what am I pursuing? What is it that I want from this life? Well, notice the Apostle Paul goes on to say here, or, well, the writer to Hebrews could be Paul, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So what is he saying? He's praying that we'll discern what is, what is good, what is blameless, what is love, what is not love. See, it takes maturity to figure this stuff out. And the only way you're going to do that is when you know God, and you know God's word, and you know God's will, and you understand what he's thinking. But for most of us, we're so locked into what the world thinks that we're taking our thoughts and bringing it to scriptures and putting God under the microscope. Really, the Bible is designed to put us under the microscope. And if you think that you're a free thinker and that you're you know, not like everybody else, let me just point out something. I just read it just this week or two. This is written by an academic, <clears throat> an educator, who said this, and he's advocating, he's deeply concerned about what's happening in our culture today. He said by the year 2000, which we've already gone by, that was written in 1997, this world will only have 10 conglomerates who control all of the media in the world. In other words, he's saying... The world has really come down to about 10 corporations or 10 individuals that are pumping out all the material in the world that you and I are listening to, hearing, and viewing. What do you think? He said, and you know what? That's a threat to democracy. Because what really makes a democracy works is a divergence of opinion. And how many are beginning to see in our culture today that there's no tolerance for a divergence of opinion? Are you seeing it? You see how scary this is? So what is Paul, or the writer here, telling us? He's saying simply this, that you and I need to see life through a different lens. You know, are you letting the culture define, and you're looking through that lens? And then when you come to church, you hear sermons, you go, I don't like what's being said, because you're looking at life through that lens. But I'll tell you one thing, if you're a daily Bible reader, you're going to look at life through God's lens. You're going to begin to see things totally differently. And you're going to develop a whole different attitude. It's going to change you as a person because what you think you become. That is powerful. But let me close with this thought. It's interesting, this relationship of love to knowledge, because it produces a pure and blameless life, an authentic life, a sincere life. Do you know the largest, in the ancient times, the biggest or largest industry in the world was pottery? And if you, if you go to you know, sites around the world and digs and all the rest of it, museums, you're always looking at pottery. And the cheap stuff is usually bulky, big, and it's not that nice looking. But the really expensive stuff, the finest pottery was very thin, very fragile before and even during the firing and the kilns of this pottery. It was often the case that pottery would crack in the oven. Cracked pottery should have been thrown away, but dishonest dealers were in the habit of filling in the cracks with a hard pearly wax that would blend in with the color of the pottery. This made the cracks practically undetectable in the shops, especially when they were painted or glazed over. But the wax was immediately detectable if the pottery was held up to the light, especially to the sun. In that case, the cracks would show up that they were a little darker. It was said that the artificial element was detected by sun testing. Honest dealers marked their finest products with a caption, without wax. And that's where we get the word sincere and authentic. Isn't that beautiful? You know what God is looking for? That you and I would grow in love. There would be no cracks. We would be real and authentic. And you know what our world is looking for today? Real and authentic people that are expressing genuine love and can accept one another even though we don't have it all together. Let's stand this morning.
You know, as I was thinking about this message, and I'm going to just have us reflect for a moment. What are you thankful for? Are you thankful for people? And are you thankful for people even though they're not perfect? Because too often we're looking at evaluating others when in reality what we should be doing is looking at ourselves. And if we're a child of God today, we've given our life to Christ, what we've really done is open our heart to the author of love. We should be saying, God, am I growing in love? And I'm not talking about the kind that the cultures talk about because that's a perversion of it. The genuine article of love is when you and I can love people in spite of who they are with all their idiosyncrasies and issues that you know you and I love them but you know we love people in such a way that at moments we even speak the truth into their lives in a loving way and say you know if you continue in that way that's going to cause hurt and harm in your life and I love you too much to say to not to say anything I'm going to be an impediment in your life to keep you from continuing down that track. And I'm willing to jeopardize my relationship because I love you enough to see and hope for and believe for the very best in your life. You know, it may cost you a few relationships, but I'll tell you what's going to happen. In the long run, when people finally get their heads squared on straight and realize you were right, they'll come back to you and say, you were a friend. Because the Bible says in Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Isn't that true? It does say that. And you know, I I said it. Who we hang with is going to affect their lives in a powerful way. Choose your friends wisely. That's why it's great to be a part of a community of faith. Have you ever thought about all the people who are doing the bad stuff in our world? A lot of them are isolated loners who have been alienated and they're filled with anger. Isn't that true? See, when you become reconciled to God, you can actually start to become reconciled with people. And the closer I get to God, the more my heart should be towards people and helping other people and caring for other people and loving other people. With every head bowed right now, I'm just going to ask the question as I close in prayer. How many of you hear God's Spirit right now speaking to you and saying, you know what? That person that you're having a problem with, God is telling you, I love them. I love that person. What are you going to do about that? You're going to forgive them? You're going to let go of that stuff? I know it's not always possible to mend every relationship. I get that because they don't want it. But on your side, have you done everything possible? Have you forgiven? Have you prayed? Right now, God's speaking to hearts. There's people coming to your mind right now. Just If that's you today, God has spoken to you. You say, you know what? There's things that's got to change in my life. Just raise your hand right now. I'm going to pray with you. Yeah, I'm going to pray with you right now. There's people that are coming to your mind. People that you need to pray for. People you need to love. The challenge. This is a challenging message to love like Jesus loves. Let me tell you. I got, I got room for growth. I got both hands up. I got room for growth. To love people like Jesus loves them. Right? So Lord, we just thank you. You've modeled for us how to love people. You've modeled for us how to forgive. You've modeled for us in your prayer. Every day we're supposed to be praying, Lord, forgive this person. You're modeling for us how we need to love others, oh God, and how we need to accept other people. And I just pray today as we go out here and celebrate with family, Lord, help us to tell people what they really mean to us. Help us not to wait because, you know, those opportunities may not come again. Give us that opportunity to communicate our love towards the people that have helped us in this journey, have influenced us in a positive way. Help us to communicate your grace, your love, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave.